some teenagers and some older people, uh, older than me, have expressed some, uh, I don't know what the word is, excitement, uh, interest in this series that we're going through. Revelation is a book that is, um, is different, uh, has a lot of questions that are attached to it. Um, as you get further into the book, it, I don't think it would be a bad word to say even bizarre, some b- bizarre happenings in this book. And so it's, it's the book that we often avoid reading. And yet it's the book that a blessing is attached to it. It says, you know, blessed are those who read this. Blessed are those who hear it. Blessed are those who put this into practice. Uh, take it to heart. And so I don't know how God blesses us when we do this, but I trust that God said you're, you receive a blessing when you, when you study this, when you read this. And so I'm excited to see how God blesses us as we look at the, the book of Revelation. My, goal, my plan right now is only to go through the first three chapters. Uh, it might be an overload of symbolism to go further, uh, we might take a little break. I, this is my plan, and my plan may change. Um, but after the first three chapters, when we get into the churches of Asia, the seven churches, we may take a little break and then come back to the marvelous chapter four and five. I mean, that, if you want to read something that's uh, wonderful, go to chapter four and five. And then we get into this um, heavy symbolism after that. We may come back and explore that later on. Today we're going to look at some of the symbolism. Uh, last uh, few lessons ago, I said we're not going to uh, look at the symbolism. Uh, Fallen was telling me this, and I meant at that moment we were, weren't going to look at that particular symbol. We were going to put it off to later. But we, you can't avoid explaining the symbols of Revelation as you go to them. Now, our problem is we have a tendency to interpret the symbols through our own culture and our preconceived ideas. And some of that's not bad uh, because we are a culture that is rooted in the Bible. We have Judaism, uh, the Judeo-Christian heritage, uh, which is based in the scriptures. And a lot of our uh, uh, idioms that we use actually come from the Bible. So sometimes we won't miss the point. Because we kind of have grown up in a culture that uses a lot of these symbols. But the key to me, and this is where where my study is going, is to go back to the other 65 books and say, what is the echo? What am I hearing when when, uh, John describes something? What is that referring to in one of the other 65 books or, or many of these books? And that will be the key to let us know what what he is talking about about. As we step back and look at this book, to me, uh, the last three lessons, I am seeing what I'm calling the isness of God. And this is important. All ancient mythology, all the stories about the gods or gods have them sleeping at times. Uh, They're distracted by events. Sometimes humans fool them. Not for very long, but sometimes humans can take advantage of the gods or manipulate the gods. And they're simply superhumans. This is 
You know, we grow up in a culture that's not used to this, but most of the world for most of time has grown up thinking there's the gods and they're just superhumans. They are more powerful than us, but they have a lot of our struggles, our human frailties. But the Bible emphasizes that God is God is God is not off trying to solve the world's problems while you sit here in this room burdened by some struggle, burdened by a sin, thought somewhere else because of sadness or hurt. And as you ponder in your mind, you think, well, where is God? Where is God in the midst of my problem? Maybe he's off there trying to do something else. And the Bible says, no, God is. He is with you. And you say, but I don't feel him. I don't see him at work in my life. Where is God if God is? And what the Bible teaches us in the book of Revelation teaches us is that even though we may not feel a certain way, God is a certain way. And we need to decide, and it's a daily decision, whether I'm going to listen to God's word and believe in the isness of God, the presence of God, the working of God in our lives, in my life, or am I going to follow the world that says God isn't? Am I going to follow my feelings, which sometimes say God isn't? Am I going to follow the teachings of others that just say, well, God isn't? The Bible teaches us God is, and it comes down to trust. And David mentioned this in in his prayer, that sometimes we don't understand. We don't understand the symbolism. Sometimes we don't understand the washing away of our sins, We don't fully understand that or other many other things. We may not fully understand these things, but the question comes down to each of us that we have to continually ask ourselves, am I going to trust in God and take him at his word or am I going to trust how I'm currently feeling? It really comes down to that. This message is a Christ centered message. That's the whole book of Revelation It's Christ centered And it's more about Christ than it is about the future. A lot of people read the book of Revelation trying to figure out the future. But the the book of Revelation is more about Christ than the future. It's more about Christ than the church. Now, in chapter 2, we're going to get in chapter 2 and 3. It's going to talk about churches. But it's more about Christ than the church. And it's more about Christ than our struggles. Oh, we all want to know what's going to happen in the future. Fine. We all want to know how we're supposed to act as individuals and as a church and how we're supposed to handle our struggles and our problems and our sins. And that's all in this book. All that is in this book. But the book's more about Christ than about any of those things. And I asked the reason I asked why. What's the reason of that? As I as I read through this this week and thought about it. I said, why is it more about Christ than it is about me and my struggles and the future and what the church is supposed to do and what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do? And the answer is this. We are called to live out the life of Christ in our lives. David mentioned this also. He said it's not only this moment. It's when we go out. When we go out, it's a daily thing, a daily 
reminder, what we do in the Lord's Supper is a daily reminder of how we're to live our lives. And we're called to live out the life in our Christ, uh, live out Christ in our lives. And that only makes sense if he's worthy. Now, think about this with me. That only makes sense if Christ is worthy of that kind of devotion. What makes Christ, what makes Jesus worthy to place him above my own desires, my own feelings, my own wisdom, my own thoughts, my own education? What makes Christ worthy to place him above what I know what is best? Because that's the call to live out Christ isn't to live out a nice life. That's not what the call is, is to live his life through our life. And that means looking at him and saying what he wants me to do, how he wants me to live is the way I do it. What makes him worthy to do that? It can only be done through two motivations, fear or love. Now, when I say about when I use the word fear, and I may, I may go into this next week, I'm not sure yet, but I'm talking about afraidness, all right? There's a good fear of God, and there's an afraidness of God. And the afraidness of God is he's stronger than me, and if I don't do what he says, he's going to punish me if I don't obey him. Don't want to sound blasphemous here, but it's almost like he's a bully. All right. Have you ever been bullied? I told you I was a little skinny kid, right? I was a little skinny, weak, the, the 62-pound weakling. <laughs> and I was bullied a little bit. And it doesn't, doesn't bother me now because I'm the bully now. <laughs> no, kidding. Um, but I remember, I, I may have shared this with you, one of my favorite memories and, and friends was Demetrius, a little a, a Greek guy. Now, this was grammar school. He was huge in my eyes. I was being bullied on the playground, and Demetrius saw that, and he came up to me and said, I've noticed that guy's bothering you. I said, yeah. He says, you go out on the playground, I'll be around the corner. And sure enough, I walk out there. The kid comes out. He's a big, tall guy. Starts bullying me. Demetrius comes up. Big guy. He says, you bother him, you bother me. And the guy left. Never bothered me again. <laughs> but, you know, you obey a bully if he's bigger than you and he bothers you and he, he makes you do stuff. You're going to do, you're gonna do the push-ups. You're going to whatever he says. And it's almost, and that's the afraidness. A lot of people approach God in the afraidness of God. And they'll do what he says, but they, they're, they're not happy to do what he says. Or we can be motivated by the love. And what I mean by that is, and th- I, I struggle with this. I think a lot of guys that I talk to struggle with this too. And a lot of the songs we sing talk about the love of God and loving God. And it's, if you just kind of changed it, it'd be a romantic song. You ever feel uncomfortable? Any of you guys feel uncomfortable singing some of the songs about, we did today, some of us are like, love, and all the ladies are going, well, what's wrong with that? Well, it's, you know, but it's just, this is uncomfortable because we attach romance to that word love. And I'm not romancing God. 
But the word love means to hold them up in high esteem, to know basically it's this. God, you know what's best. I don't. That's love. That's esteeming him, saying, I'm, I'm at your mercy. I'm at your pleasure uh, because you know, you tell me to go down that road. It's the right road, even though it doesn't seem like the right road, because I esteem you. I know that you know what is best. And so we look at this book of Revelation. We're spending time in this first chapter because it's really emphasized. It's the foundation here where he says, listen, you need to recognize God, Jesus, for who he is. As you try to undo the puzzles of life, as you try and figure out things, my son and I were talking about some things we we're trying to figure out. Well, what, what does this mean in life? And the answer is sometimes I don't know. I don't know. Because I, don't, I, can't, I can't figure out all the problems of life, but I know who does. That's love. That's esteem saying, God, you know. In the midst of my struggles, you know. And we see this in a vision, the first chapter. Let's look at this vision. Let's read verses 12 through 16 together. He's heard a voice. He's heard a sound. And he says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and his mouth, out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Have you ever tried to explain a, 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 a dream to someone? You wake up and it's so real and the feelings are there. But when you come and you start talking about it, when you're trying to explain it, it just, it just doesn't make it. People look at you like, huh? And you're like, oh, but, but you should have been there. You know, and you're trying to, you know, to describe this dream, but you really can't. And that's what this vision is. It's a, it's a vision. It's like a dream. And he turns around and he sees something and he sees this in one second. And he's trying to describe it. And it's far more fantastic than these words. And you get online and try and find pictures of it. And you'll see all sorts of tr people trying to, to come out with this. But a sword coming out of your mouth? How does that does it come coming here? Where, I mean, where's this sword? How does that work? You know, and it's just because swords don't come out of your mouth. And so we try and picture that. And it's hard to picture these things. But he says... We heard a voice like the word like is there. And immediately we know this is symbolic. We're, we're seeing some symbols there. And he said it was like a trumpet. Now, we're going to look at echoes all through here. Some of the scriptures we're going to just refer to some we're going to go to. But Numbers 10 gives some instructions regarding temple blast. And it was to call. They had a temple, a, a horn, that a trumpet that blew. And it looks like a ram's horn that you see in the picture here. Uh, it was to call the community together whenever Moses wanted to talk to people. Uh, a message from God usually called them together. Anytime they wanted to instruct the tribes to move, the uh, trumpet blast. Interestingly, in, you read in uh, Numbers 10, and it talks about it was sounded for battle, but listen, so that they would remember the Lord rescues them. 
It, it was a memory. It wasn't a blast. Let's go to battle as much as it was a blast. As we go to battle, guess who's going to rescue you? That's what it was. Not guess, but I want you to remember who's going to rescue you. It was a blast that centered their thoughts on the Lord. And the very first time it's used in the Bible, the very first time I found was Exodus 19. When the whole assembly comes together at the foot of Mount Sinai. And it says there was a very loud trumpet blast calling the people together, calling the people to God. And then interestingly, it says, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Now, think about that. You ever been in a, you know, listening to an orchestra and the trumpet? The trumpets are always irritating to me because they're always loud. <laughs> you know, and you get six or seven of them. They really, and the trumpet players love to blow the trumpet. Okay, sorry if you're a trumpet player. But you do. You blow it loud and you get six or seven of them and it's like really, really loud. It overpowers. And he says, this trumpet blast got their attention and then it got louder and louder. What do you do when things get too loud? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's like, oh, that's just too much. And, it, and there was a purpose of it. It's like, now, look, God, you know, yes, God does speak in whispers. We can hear that later on. But he speaks loudly sometimes. And it's to get their attention. I have something to say. It's announcing the presence, the communication from God. And here, John hears this blast. And it's saying, God is saying, I have something to say. Pay attention. It's a call to the new covenant people to see who God is, what he's done, what he is doing, and what he will accomplish. He blows that trumpet and he says, listen, let me have your attention. This is who I am. This is what I've done. This is what I am doing. This is what I will do. This is what's going to go on. And blessed. Are you, if you pay attention, I was about to scream, wake up, but I thought I might scare somebody, but it's kind of like that. If I had a trumpet, I'd blow it right now (laughs) and wake you, everyone up and say, blessed are you if you listen to this and you take it to heart and and you won't be blessed if you don't. And that's the trumpet blast. He turns and he sees seven golden lampstands. That's interesting with Christ in the middle of them. The first thing he describes he sees it all in one glance. So the first thing he describes is these seven golden lampstands. And we don't have to guess at the symbology of this. If you turn to verse 20, it says it's the seven churches. It's, it's made clear to us. They're gold. That's the most precious, valuable metal. And I think it represents the preciousness of the church, which is the people, not the church building, but the people in God's sight. When God looks at you, he looks at you as precious, as worthy as valuable. Some of you might own gold. You might have some, you might have bought some gold coins. <clears throat> and you don't carry them around in your pocket, do you? You have them special. You take care of them. And that's what God does. He takes care of what is precious to him. And they're on light. They're, they're, the flames are burning. And it shows us who we are. We are the light of the world, world he says. And we're going to deal with this specifically when we get to chapter 2, so I'm just touching on it right now. And right in the middle of all that, Jesus is standing, showing that he's intimately connected and concerned and he's aware about his people and their problems. When we get to chapter 2, we're going to, I'm going to tell you some of the things that they were involved in. Horrible. In fact, there's a lot of things I'm not going to tell you 
because it's so horrible, young people don't need to hear it. And so I'm not going to tell you, if you're old enough to go research it, research it yourself. But I'm going to tell you some of the things. And right in the middle of that, Jesus is saying, I'm here with you. I'm right here in the midst of all this. I'm connected with you. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of what you're going through. I'm not standing over here doing my business and letting you go through your struggles over there. I'm not watching from a distance. I'm in the middle of the action. I know what you're going to, through. I feel what you're going through. I'm here for you right now. And then we go through all these symbols, and guess what they're about? Christ. Again, Christ-centered, isn't it? It's who he is. And like I said, no doubt this is far stranger than what we're reading here. I like to look at these things. I like to put myself in the middle of it and think, what would I have done? How would I have acted? What would I have seen if I had been here? It's easy to read through it quickly. But to see this in a vision must have been mind-boggling. In fact, we find later on he just dropped dead. Not, Not literally. He dropped down as if dead. It was just overwhelming. Let's look at this vision. But as we, as we look at it, we step back and I see Christ the wonder. We will examine it in detail in just a moment. But I hear the uh, echo of Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 where it describes Jesus and he says, and this is a difficult way to, it's a difficult passage to translate. And if you read different translations, you'll see different types of um, words here. But he says, he will be called, this is in uh, NIV, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But that word wonderful can be translated a wonder. And I think that it's actually the better translation. He says, he will be called a wonder. He's amazing. He's beyond comprehension. It's, it's this open mouth astonishment, not knowing what to say when you come in contact with the living and glorified Christ. He's a wonder. I can't get my I can't put my mind around him. But we're given these symbols to help us, help us hold on and see who he is. And so we can begin to have an understanding of Christ. The wonder we sing this song sometimes. There it is. You are beautiful. Don't think physical Lovely beauty. Beauty here means, an, let me put it this way, an ugly person can be beautiful. You know that, don't you? I mean, you've, you've seen, you know some beautiful people in your life that are physically ugly. I'm not looking at you, Ryan, for a purpose. <laughs> but he is beautiful. Really. He's a beautiful guy. Anyone who's six foot four and can crush me, I have to call him beautiful. But, you know, that's true, though. He's beautiful. And so in the same way, when we look at this, don't think of a uh, a romantic beauty here. But this word, the the song that we sing fits right into what we're saying. You are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension. You're a wonder like nothing ever seen or heard. Who can grasp your infinite wisdom? Who can fathom the depth of your love? You're beautiful beyond description, majesty enthroned above. And I stand, I stand in awe of you. Holy God, to whom all praises due, I stand in awe of you. Can we sing that together? I hate to, you guys sing. When I started, you guys sing out because you don't want to hear a solo. 
You are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful to like nothing ever seen or heard. Who can grasp your That's really what we're seeing when we stand in this vision. It's just like he's a wonder. He's a wonder. I can't comprehend him. And that's okay. It's okay not to be able to comprehend God. But we begin to comprehend him. And so he gives us some symbols. He's going to say, I'm going to tell you what he's like. I'm going to tell you some things that's going to give you a whole uh, picture. I'm going to get into some particulars here to help us understand. And he says, first of all, he's like a son of man. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, talk about, is rooted in this where he calls Jesus uh, the, the uh, a, a son of man. Uh, he refers to himself in the Gospels as a son of man. And what this means is the holy is connected with mankind. Uh, he's man and yet he's God. And so when we come in and we say, you, you just don't understand. This happens a lot. You can't understand me, Alan, because you're not a woman. Okay, I can't understand women, that means, right? Everyone says, amen. Uh, but, that, but, yeah, I can understand some things. Well, if we all use that, well, you can't understand me because you're not 62 years, four months, and three days old. All right? I mean, we can, always, we can use whatever. But we can do that with God. You can't understand me because you're a God. You've never done this. And he says, ah, I'm son of man. I've been there. I've gone through that. I do understand it. I've experienced these things. And so I understand. I've walked the streets. I've been tired. My feet have been dusty. I've been hungry. I've had the same needs that you have. Don't walk away from me and say you don't understand. I understand, God says. John chapter 5, verse 27. Interesting. It says, And he, the Father, has given him, Jesus, authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Uh, your, your, some of your translations are going to say because he's the son of man. That's not what it says. The word the is not there. He's not the son of man. He is a son of man. So he's saying here, I have been given the authority, Jesus, to judge man because I'm a man. We're going to be judged by a man who is God at the same time. And he has this robe, he says, and this can be symbolic. I really struggle with this, either a judge or a priest or pro probably both. This robe that that goes down to your feet. Go ahead and switch over there. Let's get the robe up there. Either as a judge or a priest, the judges, uh, the priests, excuse me, wore uh, these robes that went down to their feet. 
uh, people who work, you can't work in long robes, right? You had shorter robes on and you had a sash that went around your, uh, your belly more. Well, this sash went around the top of the chest and it was long because it was majestic. And the type of work they, they were doing was not uh, the common labor where you had to, you know, squat down and get up. And, but, but it was the robe of the, of the priest. Uh, judges also wrote, wore clothes like this, too. Uh, and we see Jesus as both judge and high priest. Acts 17.30. Do I have that on the screen? I can't remember if I put it up or not. There it is. Yeah, I did. It says, for he has set a day when he will judge the world. All right, listen, this is good. God will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. We're going to be judged by a man, the son of man. He has given proof, proof of all this. To all men by raising him from the dead. We're going to be judged by a like person. He's going to have fair justice because he wasn't detached. He was connected with everything we've gone through. And then it goes on to describe his head and his hair. It says like wool, white as snow. And I believe that that uh, symbolizes purity and wisdom. Uh, those of you who have been to British countries the judges wear white wigs. And I think it's attached to this ancient form of this. This is a person who is wise, who knows things. And so they put this little wig on top of their head. And uh, if you're a certain lawyer, it's a smaller wig. And as you rise in the ranks, the, the wig gets bigger and bigger and longer and longer. But it's not only wisdom, but it's wisdom to judge rightly because they're pure. Isaiah 118, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Here's the echo. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. In Daniel chapter seven, it describes the ancient of days, God himself. And it says his hair was like wool. His hair was white. And so we see this connection of who we know is God in the Old Testament to Jesus. And the, and the implication is clear. Jesus is God. This would be blasphemy under the Jewish system if Jesus was not God. He judges with purity. There's no faults or incorrect judgments. When he judges, it's right judgment. He's the ultimate wisdom. He's the wisdom of God. We ask, people ask me questions and I ask myself questions. Well, how would, what would God do in this situation? What would be fair? And that's, I can't figure this out. Why, is it fair for God to do whatever? And I don't know the answer to that. But here's what I do know. He will judge with purity and with fairness and with wisdom. And he'll make the right judgment, whatever that is. Colossians 3 2 verse 3 says, in him or in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 says, Christ has become for us the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. And it describes it as righteousness, holiness, and redemption. He's holy. He's right. He redeems. And that's wisdom from God. Here we find Jesus judging with perfect, perfect wisdom. And he says his eyes were flames of fire. He sees perfectly. He sees, you know, we, we can go to a judge today and we can tell, tell things and lie and 
Well, that's not exactly what happened. The judge has to figure it out. The jury has to figure it out or try to, but not Jesus. He looks at you. He sees it perfectly. He sees your motives. He sees what you did. And as a fire that burns through all our masks to discover who we really are. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Listen to this. Nothing in all creation. Just put, it, put yourself there. You're part of creation. Nothing that you do or have, nothing of who you are, is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered, laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I can hide things from you. Some are good at it, some are not. You can hide things. We all have our masks. We all have who we want others to think we are. We all have mixed motives. But the eyes of Jesus looks at us and he sees straight through to our very core. Nothing is hidden. You can't fool God. John chapter 10, the shepherd, Jesus says, I know my sheep. We stand before the ultimate shepherd who sees us and he knows us better than we know ourselves. That's the amazing thing. We think we know ourselves. I don't even think we know ourselves very well. We fool ourselves. We become the biggest fools. And Jesus looks at us and he knows exactly everything about us. Eyes like faint flames of fire. Feet. Bronze glowing in a furnace. Holy strength. This, this jumped at me as I was just thinking about this. He didn't have his shoes on. He had bare feet. What does that remind you of? Moses becoming, coming before God at the burning bush. He says, take off your shoes because where you're standing is holy ground. Jesus constantly walks on holy ground. He's holy. Every place he walks is holy ground. That's why Jesus has no shoes on. That's why when we are in Christ, we are on holy ground all the time. This metal is something like brass or bronze. It's translated both ways. It's just an alloy that's strong. It's a metal that didn't rust. Its characteristics were strength and endurance. This is going to last. His strength is going to last. His endurance is last. Malachi chapter 4 verse 3 talks about his judgment being in his feet. Malachi 4 3. When you, then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet. Anytime it talks about feet, it often talks about crushing the enemies. The enemies are under uh, God's feet. Wherever he goes, wherever his feet take him, the enemies will be judged before him. Psalms 110 verse 1 says... Your enemies will be your footstool. His feet are strong. Let me turn over to Psalms 68. Psalm 68. This is a neat psalm. You can read the whole thing later on. But verse 1 says, May God arise. May his enemies be scattered. May his foes flee before him. When God gets up to walk, his enemies scatter. And then in verse 7 it says, When you went out before your people, O God... When you march through the wastelands, the earth shook, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. And it just says when God walks, enemies scatter. He has strength. And then voice, the voice of many waters. He says he was might. This talks about might and majesty. And we're going to try and put a little video up here, see if we can get that up there. 
while I turn over to Psalms 93. Beautiful video of this powerful. Look at that. The, the many waters coming across a waterfall here and up in Washington state. Let me read to you as you're looking at that, the sound of majesty and an awful frightening power. Harmony at the same time, beauty at the same time, wonder at the same time. Psalms 93 says this, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. The world is full, firmly established. It cannot move. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. The seas have lifted up, O Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. Mightier than the thunder of great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your statutes stand firm. Holiness adores your house, uh, adorns your house for endless days, O Lord. And you think about being at a place like this, a picture of it, and it's impressive. And his voice was like these mighty waters. Strength. Majesty. And then he says in the right hand. You can go on now. Anyone want to send me there? Go ahead. <laughs> In your right hand, strength. He held seven stars. Favor. The stars we find out later are the angels of the church. We're going to look at that later on, see what that may mean. But the right hand is the hand of strength and favor. Anyone who sits on the right hand is in a position of favor and security. Psalms 118, verse 15 and 16 says, The Lord's right hand has done many things, mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. And, it talk, and in here it talks about God's hand. If you read the whole psalm, it talks about his love, his protection, his refuge, his salvation. And in the midst of this, it says Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the capstone. And then it says, this is the day the Lord has made. The Lord has made a day that lasts forever, and he has us in his right hand. And then he says, his face shone like the sun. The face, what is the face? It's the sum of your character. Oh, did we not do mouth? Let's do mouth. Put that up there. Strength and favor is in the mouth. Um, yeah, it is, too. That's right. Put up. What, what did I have up there? <laughs> Yeah, you're right. I had the wrong strength and favor. I don't even have this in my notes. That's why I missed it. He, but look at Isaiah 49 two. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me. The, the words of your mouth, they, they speak. They're sharper than a two-edged sword. I think that's in uh, Hebrews. I think I may have that one up there. Let's see. No, no, I don't. Yeah, I do. The word of the Lord of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. He speaks and it cuts us right to the heart. And it says it, it divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow. What, what is that? How do you divide joints and marrow? I don't know. How do you divide soul and spirit? But his, his words speak right to our hearts. And then his face. It said it's shown like the sun. And what is the face? It's the sum of your character. When I went to Turkey, I gave my passport to the guy behind the counter. You know what he did? He told me to stand straight and look at him. He said it in Turkish, but I knew exactly what he meant. 
And I did. And he looked at my picture and looked at me because why, why was he doing it? He didn't ask me to see my feet. He didn't ask to see my back. He wanted to see my face because it's who I am. It represents me. And he says, this sums up the whole person of God. When we look at Jesus, we see his face. What do we see? We see brightness. We see something shining. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. This is who God is. When you see the sun, he's shi- the sun, S-O-N, he's like a sun shining. S-U-N shining. And he represents exactly who God is. Malachi 4 uses the symbolism of the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness. And he says it will rise with healing in his wings. And the result of that, of the sun in our lives, is leaping and dancing when we come in contact with him. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 talks about the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We look at the whole picture. We see a brightness so wonderful, so wise, so majestic, and so frightening. When John sees this, he falls to his feet. He fell down as if dead. And if we can ever grasp God, if we can ever grasp Jesus, we'll either fall in worship or we'll lift our hearts in praise. We're so used to Jesus that he's almost a Christmas character instead of the Son of God of who he is. There's another song. They have the words... Holy Lord, most holy Lord, you alone are worthy of my praise. Oh, holy Lord, most holy Lord, with all my heart I sing. Great are you, Lord, worthy of praise, holy and true. Great are you, Lord, most holy Lord. We're running out of time, but I'm going to ask the ladies to start that. Is the ladies start this and you know the guys come in? You know how that goes? So I'll start it. The ladies take over, okay? Holy Lord. Jesus of the flesh and the glorified Jesus are very different when we see them. Here is the author of this book, Jesus, glorified Lord. Here's the subject of this book, Jesus, glorified Lord. He's the first. He's the unbegun beginning. He's the I am, not the I was. He is the ever-present. He is the last. All the future is complete in him. History has no meaning unless it's focused on Jesus. New Ageism teaches that life is a circle. It just keeps repeating itself, never ending, over and over, over and over. That's 
No beginning, no end. It just keeps on going. Existentialism says, no, no, there's no beginning. There's no end. There's no meaning. Nothing. There's nothing. This is all nothing. We live a nothing life. But Christians know where it all began. And they know where it's all going to end. Because we know whose hands holds the end. This book, in many ways, is an interpretation of history in the life of Jesus. It says he was dead, but he lives forevermore. As we look at Jesus, as we glorify in his majesty, as we look at this vision that we can't understand, we can't really comprehend, I hope we at least lift our hearts to him, look at him, and live a life our life in praise of Him. We're going to give those who uh, who want to make it.